Welcome to Tales Ahoy. This podcast series from Orkney, Scotland, will transport you to the dark, enchanted island of Hoy, where a valley of voices will take you on a walk through time and place. On this journey, we're visiting Rackwick, the hidden valley of light. Wander through the township of Rackwick, with its many crofts and pink bouldered beach. Haul your boat up at the nose and listen to the fishermen's tales. Meet the crofters, descendants of covenanters, who eked out a living from the land and sea. Join the artists who found something special in the valley. Survey the house that was built in a day and read the sky at the Rackwick weather station. Let no tongue idly whisper here. Between those strong red cliffs, under that great mild sky, lies Orkney's last enchantment, the hidden valley of light. Sweetness from the clouds pouring, songs from the surging sea, fenceless fields, fishermen with ploughs, and old heroes endlessly sleeping in Rackwick's compassionate hills. Orcadian poet George Mackay Brown termed Rackwick Whale when he called it the Hidden Valley of Light. As you emerge from the old road, the place slowly reveals itself. Rackwick has a long history reflected in the numerous buildings, ruins and earthworks around the township. Evidence for prehistoric activity remains elusive within Rackwick, despite the Neolithic tomb at the Dwarfy Stone. Some low mounds were identified during a recent archaeological survey, but these are likely to be the remains of former peat stacks. Rackwick is first mentioned in historical documents in Lord Sinclair's 1492 rental of Orkney. Slightly later, it is listed separately for land tax payments on three penny lands in butter and meat. Similar payments are listed in 16th to 18th century rentals and indicate that the tax had changed little in 300 years, suggesting that the township remains much the same size and population. Although Rackwick is known to have Norse origins, the first recorded inhabitants were Covenanters, religious prisoners on board a slave ship on its way to America. It sank in 1679 off the coast of Deerness, the east mainland of Orkney. Jack Rendell from Rackwick tells us more. About 200, I think, in the ship. And most of them were drowned, but there, there were a few that did escape. How they got here, I don't know. 200 Covenanters were lost, but 47 escaped. Three of those found their way to Rackwick. So the Thompsons and Riches and the Willisons were the three names, and the undescended for the Thompsons and the Riches. I think the name was changed after the king because there's a record of a Richardson in the Leicester prisoners that were being taken, and I think the name was changed to Rich after the 
probably to keep anybody from discovering their identity. The map of Ratwick dating to 1791 provides the earliest known detailed depiction of the township. It shows the older part of the township to the northwest of a small drainage ditch which enters the sea near the Noost. Older farms in the western part of the township are named Cross Nest, Glen, Mount, Rumen, Midhouse, Scar, North and South Home, Muckle House, New House, Groups. Cultivation terraces demonstrate a long history of agricultural activity and manuring of the land in this early part of the township. Only one house is depicted on the western side of the drainage ditch north of Green Hill. By the late 19th century, numerous new farms had taken land to the east of the ditch, doubling the size of the township. Lower Rumman, Sandy Brace, Back Dyke, The Park, Windbreak, Muir, Green Hill, Barnmouth. Field systems, enclosures, small buildings and trackways are evident. Many of the ruined structures, animal pens, planty crews, walls and earthworks associated with these farmsteads are still visible today. My name is Perla Sinclair. I did a photographic census of Hoy Parish between 2011 and 13. I did every house in North Hoy over a period of time and I asked them to write about themselves. Most of them agreed and some of them didn't want their photographs taken so that was okay. So I just took a photograph of their house. It was a book produced and it was for sale and it's on the website for sale as well. It was a very nice experience. This 1923 article from the Arcadian describes what it calls the good folk of Rackwick. The inhabitants of this township earn their livelihood partly as lobster fishermen and partly as crofters. The men are bronzed and weather-beaten, roughened and toughened by the gales that blow in the Penton Firth and in the Great Atlantic. They are strong and sturdy, hard and stern, somewhat like the headlands that fence in their valley settlement on either side. The women too are strong and active, as indeed they must be to live in such a spot as this. The remains of the township Noost, where boats were hauled above the high water mark, can be found at the western end of Ratwick Bay. The site was mapped during the Ratwick Archaeological Survey. Stony earthworks are evident along a 16-metre stretch of the shore, with the walling visible at the northwestern end likely to be the remains of a fisherman's hut. Indeed, a fish house is marked in this location on the 1791 map. Boat-shaped hollows, common at noosed sites, are not visible. However, parts of the boat winch survive, and stones dripped with black tar from sealing vessels and creels are visible along this part of the shore. Historical photographs show a row of eight boats in the Noost in the early 20th century. The islanders knew the coast intimately. 
They fished mainly for lobsters and cod, and knew of hard-to-reach but rewarding fishing spots, such as the larder, by the old man of Hoy. At the base of the old man was a creek full of bream and cod called the Troch. Split and cleaned fish were cured with peat smoke, and the fish was sold across the north of Scotland. Chuck remembers fishing in the 1930s. Most of the men that were able-bodied did fishing. They went to the lobster fishing, crab fishing, and the, mainly lobster fishing. The crabs were mostly used for bait to put in the creels. The women did a lot of the work on the, on the farm when they were away at the sea all day. But Rockwick is a very rough beach, so therefore the boats are always had to be hauled up. When they came ashore, they, they were winched to the top and left there till, the, till they went back the next day. They, couldn't, they never anchored them outside. It's just a, a gap in the, about eight or ten feet wide where they landed the boats, and that was the only place you could land them unless you went away to the sand there. And uh, Then it was impossible to get off the swell that was in, on the sand. <laughs> They would be swamped before they could get them back alone the next day. So they were always pulled up every day. Yules and, and uh, dinghies, some of them were just dinghies, and there were engines in the Yules when I remember, but they used to work with sails and that. And the dinghies were just rowing boats, just used to wash all the time. Well, it was it was very dangerous with the weather, but the, with the wind. But of course, the folk that lived here they could church when, when the wind and the sea was going to get up by the, by the direction of wind and the tide. Later on, when there were no many men left, they sometimes one or two of the women would go down and turn on the winch. But mostly it was the men that did it, and when they landed. Just needed two to hold the boat up, and then the rest got in the winch. There's great big boulders here. They used to blast them in pieces and shift them with crowbars to get out every summer, you know, when they start fishing again. And if they got halibut, they never sold them. They used to put them in the beach and pull their boats up, make a boat slide up on top of them. Frankie Sinclair fished these waters for years. I used to fish with me brother, George. I fished with him all my life, actually. He was actually uh, 94 when he died. Come, come on about myself now, do you know? But maybe get a year or two yet. Years ago, instead of using lobster pots, he used to use what you call rings. It was just a round metal ring, about three feet in the round, and there was a slack net in it and the lobster be over the top to get the bait in. and you used to put that down but you had to haul that after an hour or two. You hauled it up quick so he didn't get out, he went down in the bag, you know. Eventually fishing as a living died out in Rockwood. They just couldn't make a living off of small crofts or tiny and there were no crofts in Rockwood that had more than 10 acres. All the fishing part was a bit of a disaster and they were all when the sea net boats came up, they swept all the cod and headaches. And the lobsters got very scarce too. The, the bigger boats came around for long hope and mostly for strumness. They were the different gear and they were having to use so much extra creels to catch 
very few lobsters and the price went out of them. That was no encouragement for anybody to come back to do fishing. There were no longer anybody with boats. And they noticed it's all, you want to know what it is now. Well, they used to lend them, it's all filled in with rocks because there were nobody, not plenty of folk to keep the nose open. But creel boats still continue to fish in these waters to this day. I didn't like fishing creels at Hollywood because there was a lot of tide there and the creel floats used to go down. But we used to fish quite a lot of cod there and uh, we took anglers out for ling and stuff like that. And it was uh, pretty good round uh, if you come round right ahead there. I've seen us going round there some days and you put the lines over and you get about maybe 1,200 with a cord in about maybe an hour's time. You're hauling about six at a time, you know, and the hooks and that. But the only would work with a certain amount of tide. The tide would be dead right about half ebb they work with. Adjacent to the burn to the northeast of Rumen is the site of what was once a fish farm. Set up by the late John Eccles, the complex contained the hatchery and breeding areas for farming Arctic char. Well, you'll never guess where we are this lunchtime. We are in Rackwick in Hoy, and we're down at the fish farm of John Eccles. Well, John? Delighted to see you again. <laughs> uh, just like, what exactly have you got in this setup here, then, John? Well, as you can see, Angus, you can't really see it unless you're making a special no, effort indeed. to come down. You, you must know, must have done a bit of excavating to get it down oh, to this hey, level, did you? Oh, Hickey, you wouldn't believe it. We excavated all this, and it was just two feet deep in wet peat mm -hmm. in the bottom, and we had to put drains in, and what a work it was. Then we put sand in, and that's made the hard base you can see now. But the reason we're down in this hole is so you get gravity-fed water. So that means you've got no costs for most of the year. Is this actually the hatchery bit here then, or what no, is it? Well, you're standing outside New Angus, and this is, we've got eight four-metre tanks out here. In here is last year's fish. They're waiting to go to sea in May, the ones out here. And this is what you'd call your on-rearing site. And inside the building here, that's where all the delicate work of the hatching and the eggs and things like that goes on. Approximately how many would be in each of these tanks here? Well, if, well, normally you would take here 5,000 smolt in here, 5,000 fish through to the spring. That's how big they are. In actual fact, there's only 3,500 in each of these tanks. Right. That's a point of interest, John. What's that bell ringing? You don't have a phone doing here, do you? I have a phone. Oh. I'm hoping Jeff's in there to handle it. We have a phone, and we use the phone actually as an alarm system as well. We've got float alarms on the burn, and we can put them on the tanks. And if anything goes wrong, it triggers an automatic dialing system, which phones my house, and I pick the phone up and this voice comes on and says, alarm, alarm at the hatchery. <laughs> and, and my stomach drops and my face goes white and I jump out of the car and hammer through as fast as I can. <laughs> like the Daleks. Oh, it's Alex, man. In the middle of the night, isn't it? <laughs> I more or less built this by myself, except for the labour I took in. But I've done all my own pipe work well, did it? Saved about £2,000 by making joints rather than buying them. Oh, it's just two years of my life, 16 hours a day, basically, is the truth. Well, Angus, let's go in here now. 
I see here, John, red lights and that in here. Why, why is that? Well, it's just the idea being that when the PD fellas are ready to take their first feed, that's your most crucial time in the whole staging, you know? If you don't get them to feed within a few days, they'll just starve to death because you're on artificial food and it doesn't stimulate them the same. So they need it quite kind of dark, kind of quiet. And this is the idea of these lights. I can control the light intensity in here. I can try and make the exact circumstance that they want. <laughs> Thanks again, John. Do you Although the fish farm is no longer here, it's an intriguing part of Rackwick's fishing history. Rackwick Bay is known for its beauty, a favourite spot for many. Massive sea smoothed pink and blue boulders line the shore. Just above the shore sits the heather thatched Burnmouth. Such roofs are becoming very rare now in Orkney. In the 1970s, Burnmouth was converted to a rudimentary bothy. The name Rackwick comes from the Old Norse Rekavik, meaning Rek Bay. Well named, judging by some of the things that has washed up. Here's an article from the Arcadian in 1955. In these days of Kuntiki expeditions and other epics across the seas, the news of a strange canoe washed up in Rackwick Bay makes exciting reading. It would be interesting to know how far the craft had actually travelled. Commenting on Rackwick's latest acquisition, one very worthy gentleman said to us, If there had been a dozen hula hula girls in that canoe, you'd have heard nothing more about the drift from the isles. Jimmy Moore has found all kinds of strange things washed up. Jimmy enjoyed going around Rackwick Beach. Beach coming. This day he set off. It was quite a windy day, cold. It was in December. I happened to look out in the bay and I saw the blue heap of stuff coming floating in the bay, coming before the wind. And he thought, what's that? So he went to have a look and he discovered it was a whole bunch of blue and white balloons. So I went down the beach, got a hold of this great bunch of balloons, put them all in the car and they're all blown up. And written on the balloons, it was to do with the motor neuron disease. We didn't have any, we still got the decoration. <laughs> so anyway, he thought, oh, well, I'll take these home. I said to Margaret, I said, I've got Christmas decorations for you. I thought to myself, it would be an idea to try and find out where the balloons had come from. We got on the phone anyway, she did a bit of research in the can, and uh, they were released in Dublin the night before. When I spoke to the girl there, she just could not believe it. She, they were really surprised. It was because of the speed of the wind, wind direction, how they had come so quickly, and how they had uh, uh, landed up there. Anyway, we just hung the balloons up in the sitting room, in the window, along with our, all the other decorations. 
A notable Rackwick man was noted in this obituary, first printed in a newspaper in Tasmania, and then reprinted in the Arcadian in 1914. Captain Daniel Sutherland Rich was a native of Rackwick, where many near relatives still live. Born 85 years, he was trained to the sea. Coming over to Tasmania, his next move was to the Fiji Islands, where he was appointed pilot. He remained for 20 years where he is credited with some remarkable adventures, including having been crowned king of one of the islands and holding, it is said, almost autocratic sway over thousands of fierce natives, many of whom secretly practiced cannibalism. It is supposed that he was chiefly instrumental in persuading King Thakambau to consent to the annexation of the Fiji Islands by Great Britain. It is not too much to say that Rich was probably the only Orkneyman in modern times who had the unique distinction of being crowned a king. Up the hill from the hostel you'll find Krasnest. Orkney dialect for crow's nest, referring to the lookout high above the deck of a ship. This croft house is one of the oldest buildings in Rackwick and is now a folk museum. It has two box beds, a dresser, artifacts and displays that reflect the early 19th century living in Orkney. One of the more surprising images on display is of ladies in lingerie. In the late 19th century, Rackwick-born Andrew Thompson and James Drever came up with a practical idea to sort out a problem that many farmers had. They designed a clip to keep farmers' dungarees up. In 1896, after emigrating to America, they patented their hook design. We now know it better as the stocking suspender clip. Further down the hill, beside the hostel and the glen, is another of the oldest buildings in Rackwick. In 1718, it became what is now known as the Old School, originally for 15 pupils. In payment for their lessons, children would bring in a peat a day. When it closed in 1879, it was reputed to have educated 35 sea captains. Later, it was used as a croft. It's the oldest house in Rackrick and it was uh, used as a croft and then when Ian Davidson died in about 39, he was the last family member there, they then turned it into um, a shoemaker shop. So Jack's grandfather was a shoemaker and then of course when he died it faded away. It is currently a folk museum complementing Krasnest. Next to the old school is the hostel. This was built as a new school to replace the old one. Jack Rendell remembers school days here in the 1930s. I think it probably went on the register when I was four. And uh, I was there till I was 15, so. My mother was a teacher in, in, in the so I, she was the only teacher I ever had. In the latter year, I used to get, uh, they used to send out papers 
for algebra and geometry and things like that. That was only extra education, but my mother taught me all the rest of the subjects. Jack's mother was the teacher in Rackwick from 1908 until it closed in 1953. In 1964, the school building here and in Hoy both became youth hostels due to an initiative by County Councillor Isaac Moore. Perhaps one of the most intriguing stories in Rackwick is that associated with a small ruinous house located on the slope to the west of the glen known as the house that was built in a day. Dan Lee explains what's behind the name. The house was reputedly built around 1850 in a single day by the community for a newlywed couple to avoid paying tax. Stories of a house built in a day, or a one-night house, are not common in Orkney. They are better known in Wales, where it was widely believed that if a house was built in a single night on some waste ground, the freehold right to the small area around the house was gained. In the west of Scotland, the practice was more common, and an account from Stornoway brings the added notion that if the hearth fire is kept alight, the new tenant cannot be evicted. The circumstances surrounding the Ratwick one-night house are not clear, other than it was built by the Ratwick folk to help a young couple. It does not appear that they lived there for long. The roofless house is small and simple in layout, with one internal room. Outside there is a small lean-to and a boundary wall. Inside there is a small alcove in the northwestern gable end. Alcoves were common features in old Orkney houses and were used for storage. There is no chimney or lum, so there would have been a central hearth on the floor in the small and smoky room. The house has not been inhabited within living memory and Jack Rendell recalled it being used as a chicken shed during the war. Whatever the circumstances around the house that was built in a day, it is the only known example in Orkney and remains a small ruin on the hillside with a very intriguing story. In a 1923 article titled Arcadie in Arcadia, the Arcadian finds rustic paradise far from ideal for these fishermen with ploughs. It is said that there is but one horse in Rackwick and the ox is the farmer's beast of burden. It has been stated in evidence before the Crofters Commission and the Scottish Land Court that one man's fields are so steep that he can plough in only one direction, downhill. While he is wont to carry the plough to the top again upon his own back, another man and his son had to drag the harrows over the fields themselves, as it was impossible for such animals as they had to face the task. The memories of Chuck Rendell are a fascinating insight into the more recent history of Rackwick. Chuck was born at the Glen in Rackwick in 1928 and remained there all of his life. The interviews here were made in 2010 when Chuck was 82. Well, I can remember 35 folk living in Rockwork here. Most of them were getting pretty old by that time. And well, I can remember when we used to carry the water in the house in buckets and uh, with no running water of any kind and no inside toilets and uh, everything was all outdoors. When I was very small, we didn't carry any, do any extra work on Sundays. It was all done the, the night before. And the only thing that was done on Sunday was feed the animals and uh, cooking. None of the women would be 
knitting socks or anything like that either. It was just a day of rest. Most of the houses were still occupied. Some were only one or two folk in them, but they, and they all had one or milk and coal, maybe, and a work ox. It was all oxen that was used in the, when I was very young. And they, we had a horse and an ox that used to work together for ploughing and harrowing. But there were no tractors here till after the war. The oats and the hay was all cut by hand, by scythe, till ended up with reapers. That, uh, before, the, there were no automatic reapers then either. You were sat on and you had to push them off when, whenever it go, uh, when the sheep board got full, you, you had to put them off. It, it was hard, but then you had not seen anything else. From 1955, uh, the Lairds made Jack the tenant of all these Crofts in Rackwick. And then through the 1976 Crofting Act, he could apply for ownership. So he paid a certain amount of money and then became a crofter owner. This was just after we got married and it was finalised in 1979. But then how can a croft be useful when it's only one hectare? What can you do? That's not viable for any to earn, to earn a living or do anything on. Here we have a graveside dirge for Jack's new ram, which sadly was a piece written at the death of Jack's new ram. Jack bought a ram and a very special ram, the finest ram in Hoy. He tied it up hard by the glen, but the ram thought that too coy. It broke away, if only for a day, and chased all the sheep around. I wish I could say what a splendid way to go, but all he did was drown. <laughs> Amen. As with many islands, young folk began to drift from the isles to look for work. Well, most of them just died off and... As they got older, they, there was a bad flu and that came in the mid-30s and there were four out of that number died within one month. My grandmother was one of them. And everybody just gradually died away till in the 50s and 60s. Some of the families left and went down to the south end of the island. In the end, there was nobody left but the me, family, and, and one or two of the older ones that, that died subsequently in the, in the end of the 60s. And me, family, all died in the 70s, early 70s. And I was the only person here a whole year in uh, 1973, I think it was. It was uh, kind of tough that year because it was quite a lot of snow as well. And I had a very bad cold. I can remember having to stay in bed most of a week and the, the postman used to feed the animals when he came up with the post. But I managed. Survived anyway, still here. Eventually, the tide began to change. New life stirred in Rackwick and families from Strumness and elsewhere in Orkney mainland began to buy crofts as holiday houses. The Stromness poet George Mackay Brown first visited Rackwick in 1946 at the age of 25 and shortly afterwards wrote about travelling along the desolate road to the valley. At the end of it, 
there is a sudden blaze of colour and majesty, like unexpected victory after defeat, like resurrection after death. At the end of it all is Rackwick. The painter, teacher and politician Ian McInnes shared George Mackay Brown's love of Hoy and Rackwick in particular, renovating a croft as a holiday home. Rackwick became a home from home for many artists and creative people. The artist Sylvia Wishart had, by this time, renovated North House, a ruined croft in the valley, and spent long spells there painting. Rackwick became a central and abiding source of inspiration for both George and Sylvia. In 1969, an Orkney tapestry was published with poems and reflections by Brown and line drawings by Sylvia Wishart. Archie Bevan, another key figure in the cultural life of Orkney, wrote in an appreciation of his old friend and teaching colleague McInnes, the full significance of Rackwick and the rich flowering of Arcadian culture in the late 20th century has still to be properly evaluated, but its importance is beyond question. This growing importance was about to be underlined. In 1970, a young composer named Peter Maxwell Davis visited Stromness and picked up a copy of Brown's An Orkney Tapestry. He was immediately captivated and stayed up all night reading the book. The following day he travelled to Rackwick and met, by chance, the author in the company of Archie Bevan and his family. During the course of visiting parts of Scotland, I went for a holiday to Orkney. We had George staying as a guest. Meantime was this um, dark-haired young guy who'd been staying in the Stromness Hotel and who had read George's Orkney Tapestry. And one Sunday I remember going out to Hoy and it was one of those days where everything happens as if preordained. I met there some people who had become very good friends in the meantime and also George Mackay Brown. And this was strange because I'd been reading George Mackay Brown for the first time in my life all night the previous night. I'd just not gone to sleep because I'd been so excited by this man's work. And we had a lot to drink and we enjoyed the whole afternoon very much and I thought that that place was one of the most marvellous places I'd ever been to physically. Most extraordinarily beautiful valley there on Hoy, with the sea pounding in just below the house. I remember George joking about there being a ruin up the hill behind the muckle house, which had once been a farm. And the people that I was with there said, well, if you like it here, I'm sure the doctor in Stromness would let you use this house if you wanted to use it. And I jumped at this chance. And thereafter, Max kept contact and gradually worked out what he was going to do, secured Bonerton ruin, various different people friends of his, friends of ours, and all sorts mocked in to help to make Bonerton a home for him. And it really was that for quite a long time. Another story of repopulation happened when Jack Rendell met Dorothy. Dorothy came up with a group of volunteers to clean up the beach in Rockwood. Well, I came uh, with the International Voluntary Service. My friend was a leader of the group, so we came up for a fortnight. So we helped gather rubbish off the beach and also take Jack's Pete's home that the boys' brigade had cut. That's why I met her. She was the cook of the, of the group and she went to get messages and I, to, I took her down to the chopper, Linus Longhope. 
He was the only person with transport, you see. So he took me down to the other end of the island and then we had lunch at the Stroma Bang. And uh, that's when it all started. <laughs> and so we kept in touch. And, uh, you know, I came back then, uh, you know, to help out at um, harvest time. And we courted for a year, got engaged, and then got married in 78, July the 1st. And then Lucy was born in 1980, my daughter. And we were very honoured. We were George Mackay Brown wrote a piece, and Maxwell Davis wrote the famous lullaby for Lucy. <laughs> so we're quite honoured to have it, all that stuff written by him. population was further boosted when a couple from South blew in. We came to live in Ratwick in April 1974. When I say we, that's my wife, Abril, and two children, Howard and Leslie. We were looking for somewhere our life direction could change and something that we wanted to do for some time was possibly getting a small holding or perhaps a croft somewhere in Scotland or Western Isles. That was when we saw a newspaper press conference given by Laura Grimmond advertising Hoy and in particular Rackwick as a place that, that was depopulated and needed new young people to come and live there. Well there was only one person living in Rackwick at the time and that was uh, Jack Randall. So we had at least one neighbour just started on the house. The first major job I started on was digging the septic tank. <laughs> anyway, there were plenty of challenges. We had to uh, get the water pipe laid in. And I dug the trench all up the road for that, didn't I? Since a teenager, Chef was very interested in meteorology. And now the chance came to turn a hobby into something else. Well, I started working, doing observations for the Met Office in 1983. That was through being prompted by a Coast Guard officer that was over. He just mentioned that Ratwick would be an ideal place for a, a weather station. So I took note of that and I wrote to um, Kirkhall. Well, Arthur, Arthur Pottinger. Arthur, yeah. Oh, yes, And uh, he passed a letter on down to Bracknell, as it was then, and yes, they would like me to start doing observations, which I did. But there was one snag. There was no telephone line in Chef's house, and the cost of BT bringing a new line through the valley was too high. Of course, I used to go up to the phone box to relay my observations. Five times a day, every day, Chef would traipse to the call box at the Glen, and the conversation would always be about the weather. And I agreed to do that in the hope that uh, we would get a telephone connection, Put it, yeah. which, which we did in time. Chef and Avril got a phone line in their house, but technology would eventually see the end of Chef's work for the Met, as the network was automated. I carried on doing weather observations until we closed the station down in 2008. 
However, Chef still collects daily rainfall amounts and sends the monthly figures to Edinburgh. We've now been living here 45 years. I think we've had a very, uh, a very full and interesting life since we've been here. Hope you enjoyed this third episode from The Tales of Hoy, and will join us for our next journey to the Old Man of Hoy. Visit our Hoy Heritage website and find out more about the people, places, and the Tales of Hoy. <laughs>